Turn with me to Acts chapter 1 this morning, please. Acts chapter 1. So if you weren't here last week, you didn't hear what we're doing here for a little while. I don't know how long this will go on, um, but each week we are taking a particular biblical character. Um, they're not the ones you normally think of. They're not the heroes of the faith. We're not, we're not looking at Moses and Abraham and Peter and John. It, it's not the big names. It's ones that you may have seen as you've read through Scripture in the past, but probably didn't park there. You didn't spend much time trying to get to know them better. Just went on about your business. Uh, we're not going to go on about our business now. We're going to look at uh, probably five, six, seven, eight of uh, these folks uh, some of them who lived while Jesus was still here, others who came on the scene after Jesus had left. And we're trying to look at their lives, um, and we're going to see some things that we see in our own lives. We're going to see some things that we don't see in our own lives. And we're trying to understand how faith grows, not just believing in Christ, but expressing that belief in the way we live out our faith for him. It's a struggle, isn't it? So we're trying to learn from other people who struggled through before us, also that Christ can get glory uh, through our lives, and we can experience the joy that comes in living with him and living for him, okay? So having said that, let's start with a word of prayer, and then I'll, I'll tell you where we're going this morning. Father, thank you for bringing us here. Um, it's, it's, it's a privilege. Uh, each person in this room is very different, uh, but it's a privilege for every one of us to be here this morning because we have your word open in front of us. And what that means is there's the, there's the potential that you're going to speak to, to somebody this morning. Uh, you've already spoken in inspiring these words to be written down, but we know your Holy Spirit works as the word is read, as the word is preached and taught. So we got high hopes for what you might do uh, in this room this morning. Again, each person is different. Uh, I know probably some, many in this room, uh, are definitely believers in your son. Their faith is not anywhere else. It's not in their, their own goodness, past, present, or future not in their own works, not trusting in some other person to make them right with you. Uh, their faith rests completely in Jesus Christ, what he did in his life and death on their behalf. There are others probably here who, who aren't there. They may think they are, maybe they don't think they are, but um, so they're going to hear the truth of, uh, from you and the truth about you and your son this morning, and I just pray that uh, your spirit will use that truth to open their eyes to see you as you truly are, and to go running to your son, Jesus Christ. And that's what, that's what we want all of us to do this morning. Whether we're already doing it or never have done it before, uh, ultimately, that's where we ought to be, chasing your son, Jesus Christ, to see his glory and to live his way and to live for his fame in this world so that all the nations, people from every tribe, tongue, and, 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 and people group will not only have heard the name of Jesus, but love the name of Jesus. We want that. And so I pray that you'll give us the help we need this morning to handle your word appropriately, to rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, me speaking it, these folks listening to it, uh, we want to interpret it properly so that we do the right things with it. So we need your help for that. We're begging for that help, and we'll praise you for all that you accomplish through this time together. And I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, hopefully you'll agree with this statement. Every child of God, and when I say that, I mean every person who has truly been born again by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has made this person alive spiritually. This person has God living within him or her. Every person like that shares 
God's greatest desire. Now, if I were to come to sit down next to you this morning and say, what do you think God's greatest desire is? It'd be interesting to see what you would write down or what you would say back to me. When you look at the word of God, it becomes very clear. God's greatest desire is for his son, Jesus Christ, to be seen and treated as supreme. That's it. First page of scripture to the last page of scripture. God is making it very clear. He wants all attention focused on Jesus Christ. Father does that, and he wants people to do that as well. And every believer, every true believer, as I described a second ago, wants that. We want to be obsessed with Jesus Christ, don't we? We want to love him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. We want to be fully devoted to Christ with with our thoughts and, and our emotions and our actions. Through and through, we want to give it all to Christ. Every believer wants that. But just as much as we want it, we struggle with it, don't we? I need help with that. Every child of God needs help with that. And fortunately, God gives us that help in his word. And he does it in a lot of different ways. He gives us theology in his word. He he tells us all about himself. He tells us who he is and what he's like and what his attributes are and what he says about everything. He gives us commands, instructions. Here's how you live for the glory of my son. Do this and you'll be treating my son as supreme. This book is full of commands to that end. He gives us history. So he takes us back thousands of years to show us what he's done in the affairs of this world throughout history, all pointing toward his son, putting the spotlight on his son so people will see and treat his son as he wants them to. He gives us the life of Jesus. And we we didn't live as Jesus lived on this earth, but we have the record of his life. And so we go back and we read the life of Jesus and the things that he taught himself the things that he did, his righteous life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, all of this given to us by God so that we will treat his son as supreme. But he gives us something else as well, and that's what I was saying a little bit ago as we reintroduced this study together. He gives us biographies. In this book, he gives us the accounts of other believers other people who share God's greatest desire, other people who want, like us, to be obsessed with Jesus Christ, and we get it in their own life circumstances. As they try to live that out in their trials and their tribulations and their circumstances and and their life situations, we get to watch them trying to do this, struggling to do this at times. We get to see their successes. We get to see their failures. Last week, we looked at a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. You were here, hopefully you remember that study. Scripture tells us he was a good and a just man. Scripture tells us he was one of the Sanhedrin, the the ruling body within Israel, those 70 men that kind of acted like the Supreme Court in Israel. He He was on that council, but Scripture tells us when they decided to railroad Jesus and have him killed, Joseph didn't agree with them. He did not consent to that decision or that action because He was a disciple of Jesus. He was a believer. He had come in contact with Jesus. He believed Jesus of Nazareth is the Jewish Messiah. He is the promised Messiah, the Christ, the King of Israel, the Savior of Israel. But Joseph of Arimathea kept that faith secret because he didn't want to lose what he had. He was a prominent man. He was an important man. He had authority. He had wealth. 
and he was comfortable, and evidently he didn't want to risk that by letting the cat out of the bag that he's a follower of this Jesus guy that the whole council hated and was trying to kill. So he was a believer, but no one would have known it for a long period of time. But even though it took a while, and it took a good look at Christ's death, Eventually, because he had watched Christ suffer and die, he came out of hiding. And after that, we saw when he did come clean, when he did break the secrecy, when he did come out of the closet, so to speak, he did it in a very moving way, didn't he? He did it in a very risky, costly, public, permanent way. Walking to that cross and taking the body of Jesus down off of that cross himself carrying it to his own tomb, preparing it, laying it in his own tomb, and closing him in there so that from that day forward, the whole world would know who was buried in Joseph's tomb. That, that made it very clear. He was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I hope that that little portrait of faith has helped you a little bit in some way. And this week, we come to consider another believer. And I would say this believer is, is not even quite as well known as Joseph of Arimathea that we talked about last week. So you're in Acts chapter 1. To set the stage, we're going to read these verses in just a second, but to set the stage here, remember, uh, Jesus has just given the 11 apostles what we call their great commission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize those who believe, and then continue teaching them everything that I have commanded you. He's giving, given them their marching orders, and then he ascended into heaven up into the clouds as they watched him go. Right after that, you remember, there were two angels that came and spoke to them, comforting them, telling them that just as you watched him to ascend up into heaven before your eyes, he's going to come back the very same thing. So don't, it's the very same way. So don't worry. That's your comfort. That's your peace. The 11 apostles then returned to Jerusalem, and they went back to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit who would empower their new work. Jesus had commanded them to do that, and that's exactly what they did. As they were there in that upper room, they met together with some other people. Christ's own family, his mother and his brothers and sisters were there. And the women who had followed Jesus around from place to place and kind of supported his ministry, they were there as well. They were all gathered in that upper room. And then within days, the the apostles, those 11 apostles, got together with Christ's other closest followers, about 120 of them at all, meeting there somewhere in Jerusalem together. And in that meeting, Peter brought up a very important matter. I don't know if anybody else was thinking about it at that point in time, but Peter had been thinking about it, and that was the matter of replacing Judas. Now remember, Judas, Judas Iscariot, had done exactly what Scripture prophesied of him. And this is, this is here in, Ma- in Acts chapter 1. We're not going to read all these verses. But Peter is bringing this up in his speech to the 120. Judas did exactly what was prophesied of him. He betrayed Jesus. Then he went and committed suicide. And then he was buried in a very desolate grave out in the potter's field that wasn't going to be used for anything else. Just throw his body out there. This was prophesied about Judas, and it happened just as it was prophesied. But that wasn't all the prophecy about Judas. Um, Peter brings up here that David, many years before this, David had described someone who was very close to him, King David, but had betrayed him. And David talked about what should happen to him. And when David was talking about what should happen to his betrayer, 
David was actually being used by the Holy Spirit to prophesy what was going to happen to Christ's betrayer. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to jot down Psalm 109, Psalm 109, I'm going to read for you verses 6 through 8. This is what David wrote about his betrayer, the Holy Spirit using him to talk about Jesus' betrayer. Psalm 109, verses 6 through 8. If I can find it myself, I'll read it. David said this, Set a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's judged, let him be found guilty, And let his prayer become sin. And let his days be few. And let another take his office. So whoever this was that David was talking about here, he had betrayed David. David wanted justice against him. And one of the pieces of justice against him was whatever office he had occupied in David's court for David, serving David, somebody else needed to take his place. And so when Peter looked at that statement by David, Peter understood that it wasn't just David talking about his own situation and somebody he knew, but the Holy Spirit was using David to speak of something that was going to happen in the future some 1,000, 1,100 years later. And he's going to be talking about this betrayer of Jesus Christ, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 original apostles, a man that these guys had walked with for three years solid, and then they watched him do what he did. And so based on that prophecy, Peter came to a conclusion. Knowing what David said, knowing what David was prophesying, then we need to do something. So look at Acts chapter 1 and look at verse 21 and 22. Here's Peter's conclusion. Verse 21, therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So what was Peter's conclusion? His conclusion was, we're the fulfillment. It's up to us to be the fulfillment of that prophecy that came from David a thousand years ago. We need to replace the betrayer, Judas Iscariot, with a new 12th apostle. And we need to do it from out of us, from out of this group of 120 followers. It's got to come from from us to replace Judas, okay? And what was the qualification for this replacement? Well, it was he had to have been a part of their group from the beginning of Christ's ministry, about the time when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, to the end of Christ's earthly ministry. Just a few days earlier, when we watched Jesus go back up into the clouds in front of us, he had to have still been there at that point in time. Whoever has those qualifications could be a candidate for a replacement for Judas Iscariot, okay? Now, we don't know how many of the 120 met that qualification. We have no idea of knowing that. Was there, were there 60 who had been there that long? Were there a were there hundred of them that had been that long? We don't know. But the group of 120 chose two candidates out of the 120. Look at verse 23, and we find out who these two candidates are. And they proposed two. Joseph, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, he's one, and Matthias, he's number two. Okay? Now, 
Most of us know what happened after this, but, but, but let's read it. Here's the two candidates. We put them forward. Here's, here's the two choices. Look at verse 24 now. What happened? And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So, I mean, get what's going on here. These men believed that just as God was sovereign over what Judas did, you know, God told it from from history past, there's going to be a betrayer of Jesus. This is what he's going to do. So just as God was sovereign over what Judas did, he's also sovereign over Judas's replacement. They believed that. They believed that God had already picked out the 12th apostle, and they believed that he would make that sovereign choice clear by his providential control over the casting of the lots. Solomon talked about that in Proverbs chapter, 13, chapter 16, that, that God even controls the casting of the lots. Throw the dice down and God controls which numbers there are. Draw straws and God controls which is the long and which is the short. We don't know what method of casting lots they used here, but this whole group somehow cast lots. They had some kind of a vote and God controlled the outcome of that and God picked Matthias. The group picked Matthias and Joseph, but out of those two candidates, God by controlling the casting of the lots, picked Matthias, okay? But it's not Matthias I want to talk about this morning. It's the other guy, the other candidate, the loser. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice. He's our second portrait of faith this morning, okay? So let's figure out what we know about this Joseph. Valerie asked me, well, you're you just going to study Joseph's? Is that going to be the theme through this whole thing? And No, it just happened to work out that way. But what do we know about this guy? And the easy answer is, what we know of this guy is the same thing we know of Matthias, right? Because they had to meet the same qualification. So that tells us something about Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice. I'm going to put a few things up here on the screen for you, just some general observations of what we know about this Joseph beginning with the fact that this Joseph had sacrificed for Jesus. We know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. How do we know that? Well, once again, because he met the one qualification that was laid down. This is a man who had joined the followers of Jesus early on, soon after Jesus was baptized, and he had stayed with them all the way up to the time Jesus left, just like the other 11 apostles. He, he was just like them. Now, where did he come from? We don't know for sure. Remember, there, there were a lot of Jews who came out of the region of Judea coming to the Jordan River when John the Baptist was baptizing people out there. There was a multitude of people, Jewish people, who were coming to John to be baptized by him. They were coming because they believed the kingdom of God was near and they believed they weren't ready for it. We're, we're sinful. And so they came out to, to John confessing their sins, letting him baptize them in the Jordan, of, Jordan River symbolically to show we know we're not ready for the king. He's coming. He's close. We want to be ready. So we need to be cleansed. 
And even though this river is not going to wash away all of our sins, it's symbolical of our attitude, our desire to be cleansed, to get ready for the king. And so, with all of these people out there with John the Baptist, as he was baptizing them, Jesus shows up, John baptizes Jesus, and I have no doubt some of those other Jews who were there watching that day left on that day and started following Jesus. I have no doubt about that. How many? I don't know, but I know there must have been some. We also know there were other men who had been following John the Baptist. They were disciples of John the Baptist. Then as John interacted with Jesus, some of them jumped ship, and rightly so, jumped ship, started following Jesus. As time went on, John the Baptist sent some of them to Jesus, and they just stayed with him. Could he have been one of John's disciples? It's possible. I don't know, but that's possible. We also know there were others who were added to the group as Jesus started traveling from village to village and town to town, performing miracles, healing everybody in sight, and teaching like no one ever taught before. There were some who heard him in their town or village and said, we're following him. And they left out at that point in time, never came back home. Okay? So we don't know where Joseph came from. We don't have a record of his initial contact with Jesus when he saw him, He believed him and decided, I I want to be one of his followers. We don't have that. But what we do know is what, what the group decided here. He was part of that group that accompanied Jesus and the other apostles. Didn't just come out to see Jesus, but accompanied Jesus and those apostles, beginning very near the start of Christ's earthly ministry and followed him from that point on. So Joseph was just like Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, the tax collector. When they ran into Jesus, they left and started following Jesus from that point on. Joseph was the same way, which means Joseph walked away from his world to follow Jesus. He didn't just go out one day, see a miracle, and go back home, go to work. When he saw Jesus, when he made contact with Jesus, whenever that interaction took place, he left his world to follow Jesus. He wasn't a tire kicker. He wasn't just out looking to be entertained. He hadn't heard the name of Jesus and thought, I'm going to go see me a miracle today. Or, I need a miracle. I I need to be healed. I got a bum leg. Need that to be healed, so I'll go out and get my leg fixed and come back. I'll be back this afternoon for dinner. No. uh -uh. He left his world. He's one of those people who left their home, their family, their job, their community, their entire life to follow Jesus. And that's that's a different kind of interest altogether. That's evidence of a very real faith, a sincere faith, a a God-given faith. And that's what we're seeing in Joseph just by the fact that he met this one qualification. He had sacrificed for Jesus. He gave up something. For Jesus. I would say he gave up a lot to be with Jesus. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 1 and Jesus is gone, he's still doing it. He's still there with the apostles, the group of 120 followers. He hasn't gone home. He's still there waiting to see what comes next. What do we do for Jesus next? He's still sacrificing for Jesus. It's one thing that we know about this Joseph. Now, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10 with me, and I want to show you something else that I believe about this Joseph, okay? So turn back to Luke chapter 10, and let me point out something else, and 
you'll be familiar with this passage of Scripture, but I want to see if maybe we find Joseph here, okay? So Luke chapter 10, and look at verse 1. So Luke writes this, After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Seventy others. Who are they? And, and other than whom? Other than those 12 apostles that were already kind of connected and obligated maybe to serve Jesus and do what he told them to do. Now he picks 70 others, 70 more. And we have to assume that if Jesus picked 70, they were likely the ones who had been with him longest at that point in time, logically. Likely the ones that had been most faithful to him at that point in time. I mean, if he's going to send people out into towns ahead of him to represent him, to speak on his behalf, to tell people that he's coming and tell them the right things about him, he's going to pick the ones that have proven themselves to be most faithful at this point in time, and I would say the ones that have been with him the longest as well. And if, in Acts chapter 1, if there were only 120 followers together after Jesus' ascension, and that 120 included his 11 apostles and his family, brothers, sisters, mother, and the women who had served him all along. What's that leave? About a hundred when you take those out of there. If there were only that many at that point in time, then it's pretty likely to me that those 70 that Luke talked about in chapter 10 made up the bulk of that group that we're seeing in Acts chapter 1 just a little while later. And if Joseph was only one of two who were chosen by that group of 100 or 120 faithful followers of the ones who had been with him for the whole period of time, then I think it's very likely that when we read Luke chapter 10, verse 1, Joseph was one of these 70. I think you start to add up the numbers that are given to us, and you, you, you watch over a long period of time, and you listen to qualifications, and, and I am fairly certain that Joseph must have been one of those 70. And when you start to think about what the apostles were given to do, here are men who are sent out by Jesus after he left to tell people who he was. Before that, back here in Luke chapter 10, this is Jesus ordaining men to really do the same thing just ahead of time. You guys go out and tell them who I am before I get there. The apostles, after I leave, will tell them who I am after I'm gone. So if Joseph was one of those guys who had been there all along from the very beginning, and he's chosen as one of two in Acts chapter 1, I have no problem believing he was one of the 70 in Luke chapter 10, okay? Which tells me that he not only left everything to follow Jesus, he he met Jesus He believed he must be Messiah. He must be the king of Israel that was promised. And so I'm going to leave everything to follow him. But then as one of the 70, we also know that Jesus sent him out to serve Jesus with even less than what he left behind, right? 
Because look at verses 3 and 4. If you're still in Luke chapter 10, look at verses 3 and 4 and listen to what Jesus told these 70 guys to do. He said, go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals. In other words, don't take anything with you. Just just start walking, start going out in Jewish towns and villages, but don't take any supplies with you. Don't put any extra money in your wallet. Don't don't pack a bag of food that's going to last you for two or three or four days or however long you think you're going to be gone. Make no preparations for what I'm sending you out to do, right? Which means Joseph was a very submissive and a very trusting man because he did it. He didn't start to argue with Jesus. We don't hear that from any of them. We, we don't hear him saying, are you sure? I mean, really? No, no preparations? No, just go. I'll take care of you. And it tells us Joseph, Joseph was very submissive and very trusting because he did it, which obviously means he believed Jesus deserved his unquestioning obedience. It means he believed that Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew what he was talking about. And he also believed that Jesus was enacting some kind of plan here to take care of his needs. Because if he's telling me not to take care of my own needs, I've got to trust him to take care of them in some way for me. And so Joseph agreed, went out doing it, trusting very submissively, very, very dependently on Jesus, as we see out of these 70 here. And he even did it with that warning, knowing that he was going to probably be rejected and maybe even persecuted. Go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. So go do what I tell you to do, and they may attack you. It's very likely they may attack you and tear you up, and who knows what might happen to you. And Joseph did that, knowing that too. So this submissive service that we see out of Joseph, to me, is a sign of true faith in Joseph. And I don't think you'll disagree with that at all. I wouldn't think so. But this isn't even all that we know about Joseph. What we also know is that if he was one of these 70, then he was blessed for this submissive service to Jesus. Still in Luke chapter 10, don't leave there. Look at verse 9 for a second. Here's one of the commands that Jesus gave to the 70, probably Joseph included. He says, well, he said, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things that are set before you and heal the sick there. So when you go into a town and you run into a sick person and doctors can't help them, you heal them. Now look over at verse 17. The 70 returned, so they went out, they did what Jesus told them, they came back. Then the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So those 70, whoever they were, I think including Joseph, were men who had been blessed with supernatural power as they traveled around to heal sick people and to give orders to demons and the demons would obey them. That doesn't happen every day. How many of you have have had any kind of power like that in your lifetime? Obviously not, but these guys did. Joseph did. And that's not the only powers that were given to him. Look at verse 18. Same chapter, Luke chapter 10, verse 18. And he said to them, the 70 who had just returned, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions 
and over all the power of any enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Wow. I mean, again, anyone? No, no takers on that one either. These 70, Joseph included, were given powers that very few people have been given on the face of the earth. But it didn't stop there. Look back at chapter 10 again. Look at verse 20. And and let me show you a bigger blessing that Joseph had received and was receiving too. Verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seems, seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Joseph being part of this group, this group of disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, especially these 70 that the Lord had ordained and sent out for the special work and given special powers, I think it's very clear Joseph was a true believer. He was a child of God. He was heaven recorded and he was heaven bound. I think that's exactly what Jesus was saying to these guys. And all of that was because God had made him such. God had made him heaven recorded and made him heaven bound. And God had revealed truth to him about the Son, and the Son was revealing truth to him about the Father. And folks, not everyone gets those blessings. That's what Jesus was saying. The only people who understand that, the only people who get that, are the ones that the Son chooses to reveal that stuff to. Even prophets of the old longed to understand some of the things that they were talking about. Well, what does this mean? Who am I talking about? And it wasn't given to them. But when the Son chooses to reveal these things to people, it is a gift. It is a gift of grace. And Jesus is saying these guys were given those kinds of blessings. By sovereign grace, Joseph had been given not only supernatural power to heal and command demons and to walk on snakes and scorpions and walk all over other enemies. Not just that. That's that's tiny stuff. But the revelation that he was a child of heaven. He was a child of God. He's headed that direction someday, and he understands who Jesus is. That's why he's following him. And Jesus is teaching him who the Father is while he's following him. What a blessing that is. And folks, the blessings didn't stop there. Go back to Acts chapter 1, and let's see Peter rolls out another one of these blessings that that our friend Joseph was was privy to as well. Back in Acts chapter 1, again look at verse 22. Back to the qualification that Matthias and Joseph both both met. Beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So Matthias, Joseph, one of those two guys is going to become a witness with us 11 guys, become a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's going to go out and tell people that Jesus rose from the dead. Tell people that I know he rose from the dead. What's the only way that someone can go out and become a witness 
to other people of the resurrection of Jesus. It's if they've been a witness of the resurrection themselves. And that's the case here. These guys had to have stayed with the group or been with the group all the way to the ascension. And the ascension happened after the resurrection. And we know that 40-day period between Christ's resurrection and his ascension, he showed himself to the apostles over and over and over again, and he showed himself to the group that, that accompanied the apostles. Even 500 brethren at once he showed up to and made his appearance to them. And so what we're seeing here, the fact that Joseph was chosen as one of these two guys tells us that Joseph was one of the very few people who ever walked the face of the earth who got the privilege of seeing, talking to, maybe even touching the risen Christ. Can you imagine? You walked with him, you watched him live, you watched him die, you knew he was in the tomb for three days, and then all of a sudden you're talking to him again. And you're watching him eat food, and he's talking to you. And you can reach out and touch him, and he's got a physical body. Joseph was one of those guys. What a privilege, what a blessing. Okay, so, so here's a man who left everything to follow Jesus. He left everything to serve Jesus, and he's been blessed by God in tremendous, obvious spiritual ways that caused him to do those things, but he's been blessed in earthly ways as a result of him leaving to follow and serve Jesus. He's not an apostle yet at this point in time. He's not one of the most distinguished servants of Christ But by God's grace, he's close. He's closer than most. And quite possibly, he's even closer than Matthias. Now, if you're confused by that, you're trying to figure out where I'm going with this, look back at the text with me. And I want you to notice the list that Luke gives us. So we've got to pick somebody to replace Judas. Got 120 people here to choose from. Here's the qualification. Who do we choose? And Luke records in a list who the 120 came up with. Look at verse 23 and how Luke records this list. He says, And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. There's Luke's list of the candidates chosen by the 120. Now, Got to get into your mind of the into the mind of these people just a little bit. Any of you make lists? Or are you list makers? I am because you know me. My memory is terrible, so I've got to make lists. So beginning of each list, beginning of each week, if you were to pick up my day timer, you would see <clears throat> things written in my day timer, and I'm thinking about everything that I've got to get done this week, and it's random, man. I mean, it's just haphazard. As as the thought comes in my mind, I write it down. And there's no order to it. There's no rhyme nor reason to it. It's just, here's the week ahead of, ahead of me, and I got to get this stuff done. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you're very random in your list making. I think most of us probably are. Sometimes we're deliberate. Sometimes we'll make a list, and we'll, we'll put it in chronological order. I need to do this, and by time, this comes first, then this, then this, then this, then this. Sometimes we do that. Other times we're making lists, and we do it alphabetically, Right? So if you can do things alphabetically, A comes before B and B before C. And so we, we list things in, in order of how they appear in the alphabet, okay? That's us. When Jews did things, it was deliberate. When they made lists, when they wrote things down to present to other people, they were very deliberate. They did it on purpose, and they did it with purpose. 
You go through the Word of God, and there's, there's countless examples of this. You go all the way back <clears throat> to Moses in Genesis recording when Jacob met with his children just before he died, and he sat down with each one of his sons, and he, and he, and he said things about them, what he knew of them, and blessings to them, if he had blessings for them. And he listed them in, in, in order, birth order. So, so starting with the first one that was born all the way down the list and, 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 until he got to Joseph, okay? That's, a lot of times that's the way Jews made lists. You look at the list of the apostles and you go back through the gospel writers where they listed Christ's 12 apostles. And what you find is there was, there was definitive order in those lists too. Mark's list, I, I looked at that this past week, and Mark lists the apostles by the very first ones chosen. You've got Simon, you've got Andrew, you've got James, you've got John. There's the first four chosen who left to follow Jesus Christ. They're the first four on the list, and three of those were the ones who were closest to Jesus. Peter, James, and John ended up getting more privileges than all the rest of them, okay? So just examples that when, when Jews make lists, they're, 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 they're done deliberately. They're done on purpose. So here's Luke. He lists the two candidates that are chosen by the 120. He, he lists them. He chooses to write them down in a certain way. And how does he do it? Well, he named Joseph first before Matthias. Now, why would he do that? Maybe Joseph was older, and because of his age, he naturally gets more honor and more respect, so he's listed first, and then Matthias is listed second because he's younger. Possible. I'm not saying it's true. Possibly that's the cause. Or maybe he listed it by order of the choice that the group made. Maybe the way Luke listed it here in verse 23 is the way the group chose the two. Okay, so 120 We've got to pick a replacement for Judas. Who do you pick? They picked Joseph first, and they picked Matthias second. Now, why might they do that? It might be because Joseph was the more popular one between he and Matthias. It might be because Joseph ticked more of the boxes of what they might be thinking of that an apostle needs to do that kind of a work. Oh, out of the 120, well, man, Joseph... He's just a godly person. He, he, he's been faithful in particular ways, blah, 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 blah. Matthias too, but Joseph more. So we picked Joseph, and then second we picked Matthias. Maybe that's the way it happened. Did it? Well, I can't say for sure, but I have reason to think that might very well be the case. You know why? Because Luke shares a whole lot more information about Joseph than he did about Matthias. He didn't just say, Joseph and Matthias, did he? He said, Joseph, and guess what? Joseph has got a nickname too, and Joseph also has a surname as well. And then there's also Matthias. And when you look at what Luke shared here, these other names, these nicknames, it tells us a lot about Joseph that we don't know about Matthias. Think about that nickname for a second. He's called Barsabbas. Literally, he's, called, he's got a nickname. People call him He's Joseph by, by his given name, but most people just call him Barsabbas. Now, we don't know who gave him that nickname. Maybe it was all of these 120 or the apostles themselves gave him that nickname. Nicknames were common, right? Think of um, James and John. Jesus gave them a nickname. Remember what it was? Sons of Thunder. 
Jesus gave them that nickname. The apostles had given a nickname that we know pretty well also. You know who that was? Barnabas. Barnabas' name is Joseph, but they called him Barnabas, son of encouragement. He was such a cons- uh, an encourager. He was a person that was just all about comforting and helping other people, so the apostles nicknamed him son of encouragement, Barnabas. And, and that's what he's called all the way through the rest of the word of God, right? It, it's Barnabas over and over and over again. So here you have Barsabbas. And again, we don't know who gave him that nickname, but this is how he was known. This is his the common way that everybody recognizes this guy. When they see him, he's, he's Barsabbas. And the word Barsabbas means son of an oath. And what it's telling us is when they watched Joseph, knowing Joseph, having been with Joseph for a long period of time, they saw him to be a very faithful, loyal, dependable person. What Joseph said he would do, he did. He's the son of an oath. He's the kind of person who takes an oath, and you don't have to worry about it. He just flat out does it every time. That's the basic meaning of Barsabbas, okay? There's another secondary way that the the word can be used sometimes, maybe talking about his quietness, his humility, the fact that he accepts the lot that was given to him without complaining. He doesn't pitch a fit. He doesn't get all riled up when things don't go his way or somebody tells him he has to do something he doesn't want to. No, no, no. He accepts it quietly and does it faithfully, dependably, okay? So Barsabbas is his nickname. That's that's how everybody knew him, all right? But Luke doesn't stop with that. He says he was also surnamed Justice. So a surname is an added name. Here's your given name. Evidently, that's not enough. Here's another name we're given to you on top of that or instead of that. In addition to or in replacement of that, here's this name, Justice, okay? And again, we don't know who gave that to him either, but they they wanted him to be known by this name as well because it said something about him too. And the word justice here is, is kind of what we think of as justice. There was a singular honesty about Joseph. He was fair. He was concerned with the truth. What you see is what you get from him. He's not trying to mislead or deceive anybody. He's not saying one thing with a smile on his face, but inside he's thinking something different. No, no, no. There's a singular honesty, no pretense. He is genuine, and that's what they knew of him. And so somebody surnamed him this way as well, okay? So this is what people saw in Joseph. Faithfulness, humility, sincerity. And Luke puts Joseph first, and shares all of that about him, and puts Matthias second, and shares nothing extra about him. And to me, that seems to imply that Joseph had more recognizable qualities, more maybe even more godly qualities than Matthias, and as far as the group was concerned, may have been the more logical candidate. He may have been the greater of the two, If the group had gone on to vote for one out of the two, Luke might be telling us that the group would have picked Joseph over Matthias, even though Matthias was qualified too. They may have picked Joseph instead because of these qualities, these extra qualities, these qualities that stood out even more than they did in Matthias. Now, that's human perspective, right? But that wasn't God's choice. No matter how men saw these two men, no matter how people looked at them, no matter what the the, the people, the 120 would have chosen, God's choice was Matthias. 
God controlled the lots so that he picked Matthias. And that's typical of God, right? I mean, if Joseph was the more likely candidate, if he was older, if he was more godly, we would have chosen Joseph, but it's just like God to choose Matthias instead, right? God chooses Jacob over Esau, the the younger one over the older one. God chooses Joseph, the younger one, to, to bless him over all of his older brothers. God chooses Ephraim over Manasseh, Joseph's two kids, younger instead of the older one. God chooses little babes over the wise. God chooses the foolish over the noble. God chooses the weak over the powerful. God chooses the poor over the rich. God does not choose by human standards. He doesn't go by human observations. He doesn't doesn't have the same preferences that human beings have. God doesn't take the most likely, the most qualified. God takes what will glorify him most. And here, he chose Matthias to be the 12th apostle. Matthias, not Joseph. Now, I want you to think for a second about the impact of God's choice on Joseph. Joseph or Matthias? They're both in the running. They're both standing before the 120. Maybe everybody thinks Joseph is the best choice. Joseph might even think Joseph is the best choice. God chooses Matthias instead. Now, 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 now think about the impact on Joseph in his mind. Human beings may honor Joseph more. The rest of the, the, the body of believers there might have thought Joseph was more qualified to, to, to have the honor and the responsibility of acting as one of those apostles. Joseph may have had this in his own mind. He may have expected that he was going to be the choice. Honor of, of men as one of the, the apostles. But it's not just the honor of men that we're talking about here. I want you to go to Revelation chapter 21 with me very, very quickly. What about these apostles? Yeah, they're, they're honored more by human beings. We honor the apostles more today than all other saints, don't we? If you walk up to me and you hand me the book of Romans written by the apostle Paul and you hand me a book written by Augustine, I'm going to choose the book of Romans. Why? Because it was written by the apostle Paul. Augustine was no apostle. Great man. I've gotten a lot from him. He's taught me a whole lot through the ages, but he's not an apostle. An apostle was sent out by Jesus Christ. He is used by the Holy Spirit to do things that other regular saints aren't. That's the way human beings look at the apostles today, and they did back then as well, maybe even more so because they were more dependent on them back then because they hardly had any revelation. The honor of man comes with being that 12th apostle. It's not just the honor of man. Revelation chapter 21 Look at verse 9 with me, if you will. Here's John writing the vision that he was given about the future New Jerusalem. Okay, So so the kingdom of God for his saints for all of eternity, how does God describe that? Well, verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, 
three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So whoever that 12th apostle is, he's going to get the honor of men on this earth, both in his day back then, 2,000 years later, in our day today. Still the honor of the church goes to those 12 apostles. They're honored more highly than all other saints. That could have been Joseph's, but not just the honor of men. Here in the city made by God for his saints for all of eternity, the foundation of that city has 12 sections and the name of each one of those apostles is one, on one of those foundations of that wall. Matthias or Joseph will be, at least at, at the time before the choice was made, one of those two guys is going to be recognized by God forever with his honor, name on a foundation of that great wall. So Joseph, you know, he, he, that's possible. for Joseph. He's one of two that can receive that kind of honor, okay? But it wasn't Joseph. It was Matthias. Matthias was the one chosen for the human honor and for the honor by God in the New Jerusalem forever. So Joseph was passed over by God for that honor, human honor, God's honor. He was passed over after he had left his whole world to follow and serve God's son for several years. He was passed over by God after he had obeyed and served the son when the son sent him out to preach on his behalf with no provisions and with the likelihood that he was going to be persecuted for doing it. He was passed over by God when he probably had the support, well, he did have the support of, of Christ's closest 120 followers. Joseph was passed over by God for Matthias, maybe the younger, maybe the inferior candidate. Now, that's hard for any human being to swallow. It's hard for any sinner to swallow, isn't it? If you watched the news this past week, you watched one particular politician who, who exemplified that for us, right? One particular politician who had his eyes set on a place of honor. Great responsibility, no doubt, but a place of great honor, too. And he wasn't about to give that up for someone that he thought might be a less likely or an inferior candidate to serve in that particular role. We don't give up places of honor very easily, okay? So I wouldn't have been surprised if Joseph was a little hurt by God's choices. I wouldn't be surprised if Joseph left at this point in time and went back home to his own life. I mean, he's already given nearly three years of his life to full-time service for the Lord. How many other people have done that? Who in this room has given three years of full-time complete service to serving Jesus Christ? Very few, right? Joseph had done that. He's passed over for earthly honor and for eternal honor and glory from God. So let's just go back home and get back to work the way we were when we first met Jesus Christ. Is that what he did? Well, very quickly, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 15. Very quickly, okay? And, and I want to I give uh, just a little bit of a disclaimer as we go there. What I'm going to give you now is my speculation about Joseph and how things went after Acts chapter 1, okay? When you get to Acts chapter 15, you may recognize that as the Jerusalem council. So here's the record of when the early church met in Jerusalem. So the apostles, the elders, the Jewish elders of the early church, 
met in Jerusalem to try to figure out what to do with these Gentile believers. The gospel had started to go out from Jerusalem, and and lo and behold, there were Gentiles who were believing in Jesus. Well, what what do we do with them? What's required of them? We Jews, we know we have to keep obeying the Mosaic law, but do they need to obey the Mosaic law? Do they need to be circumcised? They need to obey all the Sabbaths like we do and all the feasts and the festivals and everything else that's required of us. Do they need to do the same thing? So the, the group of leaders got together and they reached a unanimous decision and they said, no, the Gentiles are not required to live by the Mosaic law. They did give them some uh, parameters in which they should live to make them stand out in their pagan communities. Don't do this. Don't do this. You should do that. But, but it wasn't because of the Mosaic law. It's just you live a bunch of, among a bunch of pagan idolaters, and you shouldn't look like them anymore, so live this way instead. So there were a few restrictions that they came up with. Then they sent Paul and Barnabas out to spread the word to the church, to the Gentile church in Antioch, because there were a whole lot of Gentile believers there, and it's kind of where the Gentile church was really getting off the ground and making it start. So Paul and Barnabas, you go and take this decree to them and let them know what is required of them and not required of them believing in Jesus Christ. In addition to Paul and Barnabas, they sent out others to help those two great saints. Who did they send? Well, chapter 15, I want you to look at verse 22, okay? Verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Namely, here's the guys, Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. See that? Chosen men of the company of the apostles and elders, and one of those was Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and the other one was Silas. Now, why would we be interested in that? Because Joseph is not one of them. You don't see Joseph's name there, do you? He's not one of those two. Or was he? Judas, the one being called Barsabbas. That's the literal Greek rendering of what Luke is writing here. Judas, the one being called Barsabbas. Barsabbas, and that is the exact language that Luke used back in chapter 1 to describe Joseph, the one being called Barsabbas by the apostles and their close company. That that group of 120 close followers of Jesus that were there with the apostles, they used the same nickname for somebody in their midst. Now, would there have been two men among the apostles' close company with the same nickname? Oh, we got 100, 120, 130 people who have been with Jesus for a long period of time, and, and, and we're all usually together. We're on the same page. We're working and serving together, and we got two people who have the same nickname. Likely? I, I don't really think so. Yes, James and John were called the Sons of Thunder, but they were recognized that way as a team, as a group. These two guys are the Sons of Thunder. Here's a guy named Barsabbas, called Barsabbas, because of characteristics that were seen in him, okay? And, and a nickname, that's the, very, that's the very essence of a nickname. You give it to somebody to distinguish him from everybody else based on things about that person. So, we'll use Debbie for an example here. Let's pick on Debbie Crater. Bubba. There's only one Bubba 
in the Crater family. There's only one Bubba in the Rosemont Church family. If somebody else walked in here today, new person, and we got to know him, and somebody said, let's call him Bubba, would we do it? No, uh-uh. We've already got a Bubba. There's one Bubba in our, in our midst, part of us. He's distinguished. That's the way everybody knows him. Probably some of you don't even know Bubba's given name. We just call him Bubba, right? That's what a nickname is for. So here you've got someone called Barsabbas. Now, now Luke didn't use the same given name for him. In Acts chapter 1, our guy is Joseph, who is known as Barsabbas. Here, Luke brings out a different name, verse 22, and it's Judas, who was known as Barsabbas. And I can't explain to you, if it's the same guy, why it's a different name. Some people think this was uh, Joseph's brother. Judas was Joseph's brother. He was also son of an oath. They were both sons of the same person. But these nicknames are not given to someone based on what their parent was like. It's not that their father was a guy who did exactly what he was supposed to do. It's that Joseph did this. He's the one who's known as a dependable, loyal, faithful person and very quietly goes about it so that whatever he's promised to do or if something's given to him to do, he doesn't complain about it, even if it's a hard thing to do. And so I think, and again, I'm not going to fight with somebody over this and and I reserve the right to be wrong. God can correct me on this someday. But I think it's very likely that who we're finding here in verse 22 is still our guy Barsabbas. And he's still doing what he had been doing for three years, following along with the apostles and following and serving Jesus. What he was still doing in Acts chapter 1 when the whole crew looked around the 120 and they said, Joseph, Matthias, those are our two choices. And he's still doing it after he was turned down by God. He's still doing it sometime later, maybe a few years later at this point in time. He's still doing the same things. And look down at verse 30 to see what he was doing. So so when they were sent off, Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Barsabbas, when they were sent off to Antioch, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, the believers in Antioch, They rejoiced over its encouragement. Now, Judas and Silas, Barsabbas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. What's Barsabbas doing? Exactly what he's given to do. He's made a prophet By Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, he's given the gift of prophecy. He's given the role of speaking on behalf of God, delivering revelation to God's people. That's what he's doing in Antioch. He's encouraging the people in Antioch, the believers, Jewish ones, but Gentile ones as well. He's encouraging them. But then also, when the people in Antioch want to send him back to Jerusalem to do something... He submits to them and does exactly what the church in Antioch wants him to do, just like he did what the church in Jerusalem wanted him to do as well. What is that? It's faithfulness. It's dependability. It's loyalty. It's doing exactly what he's been given to do, exactly what he agrees to do, and doing it without complaining, even though he's getting sent back and forth and he's probably working himself to the bone. He's not complaining about it. He's not pitching a fit about it. He's not saying, I'm doing it, but I should have been the 12th apostle. I should be the one giving orders, not the one taking the orders. Uh-uh, none of that out of Barsabbath because he's son of quiet and he's son of an oath. And I think this very well be, may be 
the very same guy we're reading about back in Acts chapter 1. Still doing the very same thing that we were talking about back then. And that's why we put up here the fact that he kept serving Jesus. Now, one last bit of fascinating information, and I'll wrap this up for you. Back to Matthias for a second. You know what his name means? Matthias' name means gift from the Lord. That's his given name, Matthias, gift from the Lord. So his parents chose to name him gift from the Lord. Why? Maybe they hadn't been able to have children easily. Matthias shows up, and obviously to them, this is a gift from the Lord. We didn't think we were going to get to have children. Now we've got a child. This is the grace of God. This is a gift from the Lord. Maybe that's why his parents named him that. But think about that name in light of God choosing him as the 12th apostle. What is he? He's a gift from the Lord to the church. That's what he is. He's a gift from the Lord to the church. And what I see here is that if this Acts chapter 15 Barsabbas is our guy, this is, this is Joseph, also surnamed Justice, nicknamed Barsabbas, if it's the same guy, here's a guy who seems to get that. He seems to understand, I'm not the Lord's gift to the church as an apostle, but Matthias is. And I'm good with that. I'm okay with that. And not only am I not going to pitch a fit about that, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to keep serving the Lord no matter what he gives me to do and no matter what route those orders come to me. I'll submit to the, to the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. I'll submit to Matthias as the 12th apostle as he sends me to Antioch to serve the believers there. And then when the believers in Antioch want to send me back to Jerusalem to do something for them, I'll submit to them too because ultimately the orders are coming from Christ down through his leaders, down through his people to me. And as long as it's from Christ and as long as it's for Christ, that's what I'll do gladly. That's where I want to be, don't you? That's what faith ought to look like. I mean, in real life, every day, common, going about your business, that's what faith ought to look like. It doesn't matter what position we're given. It doesn't matter whether we've got authority over people or we're placed under the authority of other people. It doesn't matter whether it comes if it comes from Christ and it's for Christ, I'm going to do it gladly. If it's something he's told me to do, I'm going to do it. If it's something I've promised to do, I'm going to do it because it's all about Christ and I'm obsessed with Christ. That's our guy, Joseph. That's our guy, Barsabbas. And I long to be like that in real life. So how did he get there? Well, last week when we were talking about Joseph of Arimathea. What did we say? What changed him? His contact with Jesus at the death of Jesus. You know, he, he was part of the Sanhedrin. That meant he was in Jerusalem every day doing his job. Jesus was traveling around everywhere else. So he didn't see a whole lot of Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. But when, they brought, when Christ came back to Jerusalem and he was arrested and he was tried through the night and then he was taken before Pilate and then he was taken before the crowd and then he was crucified and hung on that cross Joseph of Arimathea was there watching all of that, and it was that encounter with the suffering of Christ, watching the suffering of Christ, that brought him out of the closet and, and grew his faith tremendously, probably in a matter of days, if not hours, so that then he becomes public and costly and risky and permanent with the way he's serving Christ. I think we've seen the same thing in this Joseph, too. I think his faith, his, his service, his open, active commitment to Jesus 
It was more instant and it was more constant than the other Joseph, but so was his exposure to Christ. This Joseph we've talked about today is someone who left everything to follow Jesus and he lived with Jesus and he walked with Jesus every day for probably nearly three years. And that had an undeniable impact on our Joseph today. That seemed to leave Joseph with an impression that kind of said, I've seen that he is so great. I've seen that he's so gracious. I've seen that he is so worthy that whatever he wants from me, I'll give it to him. Whether that means a position of honor and authority over everyone else or a place of submission to everyone else, I'll do what he requires and I'll do it with contentment. And I'll trust him to give me everything I need to do it and everything that he wants me to have in the process. What Joseph was seeing of Christ all the time was producing what Joseph was doing for Christ all the time. And I have to ask, what about you? Because honestly, I think that pattern holds true for every one of us. Whether we're looking back to our initial belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior or our active obedience and our service for him in in an ongoing way, what we're seeing of Christ will produce what we're doing for Christ because it's causing what we're thinking of Christ. Let me put this up here on the screen for you. I'm going to leave it up there for a minute or two. You should probably write that down. What we're seeing of Christ will produce what we're doing for Christ because it's causing what we're thinking of Christ. And this will hold true in both directions. If you show me a spiritually lifeless, inactive, passive, disobedient, detached person, then I'll show you someone who's not looking at Christ very often. That's a person who's not reading about Christ on his own very often. It's a person who's not placing himself under the preaching and teaching about Christ very often. It's a person that's not spending time around God's people talking about Christ and his place in their life very often. It's a person that's not praying, thanking God for all that they know about Christ and have in Christ. That's a person who is distracted to anything and everything other than Christ in his mind, and so it's showing up in his actions or his lack of actions. On the other hand, you show me someone who's on fire for Christ, you show me someone who is serving Christ with zeal and and proclaiming Christ without fear of what people are going to say about him, you show me someone who wants to be with Christ's people all the time, and that's someone who's sitting at the feet of Jesus regularly, listening to him, watching him, amazed by him thrilled by, overwhelmed by Christ's grace, and it comes out in their actions. They're not concerned about a position. They're not concerned about a role. They're not resistant to authority that's put over them. If it came from Christ and it's about Christ, they're fine with it, and they're devoted to it because they're devoted to him. So my question to you is this. What would the portrait of your faith look like if it were painted lately? I'm not talking about your entire life. I'm not talking about what you think is your entire Christian life from the time it started until now. Just lately, last week, last two weeks, if someone painted a portrait of your faith, what would it look like? And then ask the second question, what has your exposure to Christ been like during that same time period? Here's what my faith has looked like, and this has been my exposure to Christ during that same time period. And I'll guarantee you, 
they will follow. You, you will be able to graph that thing, and they, they will match. The lines will line up. You won't be able to separate the two. What have you seen of Christ, and what have you done for Christ? And for us folks, with our access to his word and our access to his church, it's an easy fix for us to increase our exposure to Christ and our devotion to Christ, both of them. It's, it's easy for us. We have the resources for it. So the question is, if you're struggling, will you do that? Will you increase your exposure to Christ? Is he worth that? Does he deserve that? Has he earned that from you? Look at Jesus and see what happens, okay? Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what you tell us about people that we think are pretty insignificant. And they are. I mean, Matthias, Joseph, they are insignificant, but you're not. What you did in those men, what you did through those men, what you're still doing through those men, what you will do through those men for all of eternity is not insignificant. It's huge. And so I guess, I guess my prayer is to thank you for um, what you've shown us about yourself through Joseph. And as I look at Joseph, I, I see a lot that, that I want to emulate. I see a lot that's missing in my life. And I see a lot that should be there. I see a lot that I want to be there. And I see that it's, it's just all centered on Christ. He, this, this guy had seen so much of Christ. He had spent so much time with Christ. He had watched so much. He had listened to so much that he, he was just completely convinced that this is the Son of God. This is the King of God's kingdom. This is the Savior for God's people. And therefore, whatever it is he gives me to do, whatever he wants from me, whatever I can do for him, I'm going to do it because he deserves it. He deserves it inherently. He, he has earned it with all that he's done. I'm going to give it to him. I'm going to be devoted to him. I will walk away from my world to follow him and do whatever he wants me to do. And then even after Christ was gone, he still had that attitude. He's, he's still doing it. Okay, you know, followers, if you want me to be the 12th apostle, I'll be the 12th apostle. When God decides I'm not the 12th apostle, it's okay. I'll keep doing whatever Christ gives me to do. That's what I want to see in me. And I confess to you, Lord, that, that's not me all the time. It's, it's not. That old man, that selfish nature rises up, and, and I want to do what I want to do. I want, to, I want the responsibilities that are more comfortable and easy and profitable for me. I want the recognition of men. It wouldn't be bad to have your recognition for all of eternity as well. And if I have a choice between those two things, I'm taking the recognition. I'm taking the glory. That's what comes from me way too often. So evidently, what I've seen this past week is that my exposure to Christ has, has been too little. It's even possible to have the Bible open studying to teach other people, but I'm not looking at Christ. I'm not looking for Christ. Just, just facts, just information, just teaching material. So Father, I pray that you will, you will use this portrait of faith, this man, what you did in his life, what, what, how you grew him, how you built his faith, how you focused his attention on your son, Jesus Christ, how you made him obsessed with Jesus. I pray that you'll do that in my mind, my heart as well. And anybody else that's in here this morning struggling in the same way, and I feel there probably are some, I pray the same thing for them too. I pray for your work of grace through your Holy Spirit, with your word, to capture our attention for Christ once again and not let it go. Grow our faith. Grow how enamored we are with your son for his glory and for our joy in him. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.